This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 168th edition of the program. Today is Thursday, November 15th, and before we get into the news, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, all of which signed up just this last week to support us, and that includes James Wolfe Jr., Jimmy Cotro, Malcolm Holder, Matthew DiBattista, Sky Barkschat, and Verthika Froskscale. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support, or you can check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So on today's show, during freshman orientation, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez took the time to protest in Nancy Pelosi's office demanding action on climate change. She's also still a target of Fox News, but their attacks are starting to get increasingly comical, and their obsession with her really is getting pretty creepy at this point. Also, Rashida Tlaib has the perfect strategy to combat Trump's divisive rhetoric, and House Democrats have a surprisingly good legislative agenda going into 2019, and yes, that includes an attempt by progressive Pramila Jayapal to have a debate and a vote on Medicare for All. And the 2020 campaign season has essentially begun as Richard Ojeda becomes one of the first to announce his candidacy for the presidency, and a former Clinton advisor is fueling even more speculation that Hillary Clinton may be running for a third time. Also in this episode, the Jane Sanders investigation is officially over. Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell both reveal for different reasons why they may be the biggest hypocrites on the planet. So we've got those stories on the agenda for today, along with some more. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy the show. Let's go ahead and uh, get into it. Progressive Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez isn't even technically a congresswoman yet. She hasn't been sworn in, but she's already starting to affect change in a really powerful way because as Anthony Adragna and Zach Coleman of Politico report, more than 200 youth activists flanked by representative-elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez flooded House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi's office this morning, urging Democrats to act more decisively on climate change. Capitol Police said they arrested 51 protesters for unlawfully demonstrating outside Pelosi's office in the Cannon House office building. The arrests began a few hours after the demonstration began when protesters refused to leave the area. Pelosi said she welcomed the protests and called on the police, quote, to allow them to continue to organize and participate in our democracy. Ocasio-Cortez, who left before the arrests began, said she was there to support the protesters and encourage Pelosi to listen to them. Ocasio-Cortez has not made clear yet whether she'll back Pelosi for speaker when Democrats hold leadership elections later this month, though noted today she's looking forward 
forward to us working together. We need a Green New Deal and we need to get to 100% renewables because our lives depend on it, Ocasio-Cortez told reporters. The IPCC themselves, they say we have 10 years left and I, not just as an elected member, but as a 29-year-old woman and thinking not just about what we are going to accomplish in the next two years, but the America that we're going to live in in the next 30 years. The Green New Deal has become a rallying cry for liberals who want to build out renewable energy through a big infrastructure and jobs package, though there are few specific plans on what it might entail. Protesters outside Pelosi's office held signs asking, what is your plan? Now, reporter Emma Viglund of TYT was there filming this event and she actually was able to interview Ocasio-Cortez and here's a clip of that video posted to Rebel HQ today. Should Leader Pelosi become the next Speaker of the House, we need to tell her that we've got her back in showing and pursuing the most progressive energy agenda that this country has ever seen. Can you respond to the Democratic Party's, the DNC's, reversal on uh, fossil fuel donations? You know, I think in order for us to move forward and what Americans are asking, not just of the Democratic Party, but for all members of government, Republican, Democratic, uh, Independent, everyone agrees that we need to get big money out of politics and that the way future is to figure out a way where we can govern without uh, special interests getting in the way between us that gave me more hope than I've had, I think, in the last two years. Because Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she's already proving that she's using her platform to fight for the American people. And even if this may not get legislation passed, what she's doing here is still incredibly important. She's supporting protesters in their attempt to bring attention to an issue that is fundamentally important. Climate change poses an existential threat to humanity. And in these 10 years that we have to act, if the IPCC report is true, and I think that it's pretty accurate, then we've got to do everything in our power because even if we fail, at least we'll be able to look back and say we tried our best. But at this point, if you really were to step back and ask yourself, am I trying the hardest I possibly can to save the planet? I don't know that I could say I am. I think a lot of us could be doing more. And Ocasio-Cortez is giving a voice to people who would otherwise not be listened to. So this is so important and this was such a meaningful protest and it really showed that she's not just going to get elected and then abandon the people. She stood in solidarity with grassroots protesters inside of Nancy Pelosi's office. How bold is that? You want to talk about speaking truth to power? There is no better way to speak truth to power. Now, what I find hilarious is that centrist Democrats are using this as an opportunity to shit on Ocasio-Cortez, and they're saying, well, look, this really just shows how naive she is because you're biting the hand that feeds you. If you actually want power in Congress and you want to be able to affect change, then why would you target Nancy Pelosi in such a brazen way by going to her office? But what these people fail to grasp is that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is looking at the bigger picture and she's being bold. She's actually speaking truth to power. 
And these people say that what she's doing is naive because this is what they tell themselves to make themselves feel better about doing jack shit about climate change. Now they say, well, you know, what Nancy Pelosi can do is punish Ocasio-Cortez for this behavior. If she actually does become the House Speaker, which is likely, she can strip Ocasio-Cortez of any committee appointment she might be able to get had she not protested inside of Nancy Pelosi's office. But here's the thing. When you have people power behind you, do you honestly think that Nancy Pelosi is going to want to challenge that and piss off the grassroots by punishing Ocasio-Cortez? I mean, maybe she would do something like that. I wouldn't put it past Nancy Pelosi. But do you honestly think that Ocasio-Cortez would just accept that lying down? No, she has the people behind her and she would call all of her supporters again to head to Nancy Pelosi's office in order to ask her, why haven't you assigned Ocasio-Cortez to any committees? Because when you have grassroots behind you, you have the power. You are emboldened. So that's a criticism that I wanted to address because I think it's absolutely cowardice. You are defending a strategy of remaining a coward and not being bold and not speaking truth to power. And anyone who is actually criticizing Ocasio-Cortez for this and who claims to be a lefty, you're not a lefty because you cower in fear of elites. And what's interesting is that this really did show how strong progressives are because Nancy Pelosi, she didn't seem to mind too much that this protest occurred in her office, or certainly she didn't vocalize any anger at that because she tweeted out, quote, deeply inspired by the young activists and advocates leading the way on confronting climate change. The climate crisis threatens the futures of communities nationwide, and I strongly support reinstating the select committee to address the crisis. She also said, we welcome the presence of these activists and we strongly urge the Capitol Police to allow them to continue to organize and participate in our democracy. So, I mean, this might not necessarily be the bold action that we were looking for, but it's a step in the right direction. And honestly, um, I do give Nancy Pelosi credit, something I rarely do, for actually not getting offended by this and taking it personally, because this is not about you, Nancy Pelosi. You are the leader of House Democrats, and if you plan to remain in that position, you need to prove to us that you're willing to fight for us, because us millennials, when we're older, when you, we're your age, our future is going to be miserable because of climate change. We're already seeing the effects of climate change every single year. Small island nations are terrified currently because they see rising sea levels. They see what that's going to do and how it existentially threatens them. So Nancy Pelosi, at least here, was able to be mindful of the fact that this wasn't about her. This wasn't a protest of Nancy Pelosi. We're just saying you have power. Do something. This is a fight for our lives. Now, Ocasio-Cortez responded thanking Nancy Pelosi, and she said, We have 10 years left to plan and implement a Green New Deal before cataclysmic climate disaster. Reinstating the select committee is exactly what we need to do. She then added, Next, we should define the standards of that committee. To be truly effective, it should, one, have a mandate to draft a Green New Deal plan by 2020, and two, not have officials appointed to it that accept fossil fuel industry contributions. So when Ocasio-Cortez gets a concession from Nancy Pelosi, even if it's a small concession, it's a concession nonetheless, she then pushes the envelope further and tries to control how that committee is run by saying we should not allow people to serve on this committee if they accept fossil fuel contributions. So Ocasio-Cortez at this point 
gets an A-plus rating for me. She hasn't even been sworn in and she gets an A-plus rating because she is showing what we get and what we can possibly accomplish when we elect grassroots progressives and progressive firebrands. And once her and Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib arrive at Congress and are sworn in, I expect more of this because they've shown that they're fighters. They've shown that they're willing to put their own careers on the line in Congress in order to stand up for the people. And it's it's more than just inspiring, it's touching because we haven't had anyone in such a long time, you know, aside from Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, fight for us to this extent. And when I saw the picture of Ocasio-Cortez inside of Nancy Pelosi's office speaking to all of these organizers, it honestly, like, it it lit this spark in me where I felt like it's possible that we can elect people that represent us. So I am thrilled to see what Ocasio-Cortez accomplishes to all the people who are bemoaning what she did here, saying, look, you know, you all kind of screwed yourself over by kicking out Crowley because now you have an amateur who doesn't know politically how to accomplish the goals that she wants to accomplish. I think she's going to make you guys eat your own words because she's already showing that she's a force to be reckoned with. And when you have the power of the people behind you, you can do great things like this. Fox News's obsession with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is officially beginning to get a little bit creepy because just within the past 24 hours, they mentioned her name nearly 30 times, and I'm not exaggerating about this. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. 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 Alexandria 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 Ocasio-Cortez. 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 Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I decided to. To include myself in that clip because why not <laughs> so it's it's very clear that they are going out of their way to look for reasons to attack her and criticize her and to be fair not all of the mentions there were negative tucker carlson seemed to agree with her when she called out amazon but for the most part by and large when fox news talks about alexandria ocasio-cortez they're bashing her. But in an attempt to criticize her for any and every little thing she says or does, it's getting a little bit comical. They're starting to actually look ridiculous. So for example, this graphic has made its rounds around the internet because <laughs> I don't think they realized how unintentionally hilarious it was when they made this because they're describing pretty reasonable policies like free college and Medicare for all as, quote, radical ideas, and I think that Ocasio-Cortez's response really did sum it up perfectly. She said, oh no, they discovered our vast conspiracy to take care of children and save the planet. But believe it or not, those aren't even the dumbest attacks on her, because they literally attacked her for being poor. 
And again, I'm not exaggerating about this. They attacked her because she can't afford rent in D.C. And they literally laughed at her. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, she says that she's having a hard time with something. Stand Do we have it now or should I wait? Okay. <laughs> Let me know when we have it. So Alexandria Cor uh, Ocasio-Cortez says this. I have three months without a salary before I'm a member of Congress. So how do I get an apartment? Those little things are very real. She said this to the New York Times. What do you think of that? It's very Alexandria, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez to say this. I think her supporters like it. This is who she is. She comes from the Bronx. She's young. She's the youngest member of Congress. It's tough to get an apartment in D.C. I also think she's not alone. She might be the only one talking about it, but a lot of congressmen in Washington, D.C. say, given the cost of living there, it's not exactly the Washington. I, I, I think, I think that quote was preceded by a year and a half ago. I was tending bar in Brooklyn, right. or something, which is true, by the way. Well, that's playing to her base. But the fact of the matter is, Washington D.C. and the greater metropolitan area is the most expensive county in the world to to live in right. in America now. So, if, I think what she's talking about is all of the money in Washington, all of the wealth in Washington, all of the power, and a little simple person like her from New York. Yeah. Can't find a place to live. It is a brilliant political line. On the other hand, her resume that Shelby just mentioned about being from the Bronx, it turns out when you read deeper, she had a lot more formative years in Westchester County, New York, which is a little ritzier than the Bronx. I'm from New York. I don't want to throw stones at any boroughs or counties, but she, her resume doesn't always match up. And some of those shoots during the campaign, she had these multi-thousand dollar outfits that could pay a month's rent in Washington, D.C. You're right. Well, I live in Washington. It's very expensive. But she's been all over the map on some of this stuff. I don't think it gets any more elitist than that. To laugh at someone for being poor and not being able to afford rent in DC, if you're laughing at someone because of that, you're just an elitist prick. What normal person watching that thinks, oh yeah, you know, how goofy of her to not be able to afford an apartment in DC when she was just a bartender last year. I mean, how on earth would this resonate with anyone who's not an elitist prick like you? I mean, to laugh at someone, to poor shame someone on national television, it's very Fox Newsy. <laughs> um, one of them said, quote, it is a brilliant political line. It's just a fact. She wasn't calculating like other politicians do, these focus group driven, poll minded politicians who don't say anything unless they had a focus group determine whether or not it would be beneficial for them. She just said it because it's true. So she thinks that this is Ocasio-Cortez playing politics. No, she's just stating the reality of the situation that in order to become a member of Congress, it's really difficult unless you're already wealthy, unless you're already an elite. Now, additionally, um, one host even speculated that she doesn't have as humble as a background as she's been alluding to. And that's just idiotic to say because she was literally a bartender a year ago. I mean, do you think that she was just a bartender for the sake of being a bartender? So that way, when she one day launches this political career, she could say, I was a bartender. I mean, the odds of her defeating Joe Crowley in the first place, they were stacked against her. So she was a bartender. So yes, she does have a humble background. She was a working class American. And this same host asserted, quote, she had these multi-thousand dollar outfits that could pay a month's rent in Washington, D.C. Yeah, I'm calling bullshit because how could you possibly know that? And it's the same 
line of reasoning we often see adhere from Republicans. Jason Chaffetz was just recently talking about how maybe people would be able to afford healthcare if they just stopped buying those new iPhones every other year. And this is really the same line of reasoning here. He's saying, well, you know, maybe she'd be able to actually afford rent if she stopped buying all of these multi-thousand dollar outfits. You're full of shit. Nobody believes you. We don't believe that you know how much her outfit cost. And if you're such a fashionista, then maybe Fox News isn't the right platform for you. Maybe you should write for a style magazine like uh, Variety or whatever. I don't actually I don't know any style magazines, but you're in the wrong place if you honestly do know that much about fashion. Now, I do want to share Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's response to the Fox News anchors because I think that what she said summed it up perfectly. She states, one, Fox News, why can't any of your anchors say my name correctly? It's been five months Two, it is bizarre to see 1% salaried anchors laugh at the U.S. housing crisis. And three, never purchased pricey clothes, plus always told my story, but repeating lies until they are believed is your thing. But... By and large, what this clip made clear is that they are looking for reasons to attack her, any reason possible. They're willing to latch onto it, but in covering Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez this much, they're not only making themselves look ridiculous, but they're also inadvertently promoting progressive policy ideas, which helps us. I mean, who could forget <laughs> the hilarious clip from Sean Hannity after she won her primary where he talked about how scary her platform was. This is the future. This is your modern Democratic Party. Cortez, who will likely win the general election in a Democratic district, is pushing for, let's see, single-payer universal health care, universal jobs, government-subsidized housing for everybody, tuition, free colleges. She wants to abolish ICE and, of course, impeach President Trump. How tone-deaf and out-of-touch do you have to be to think that policies like, quote, women's rights and support seniors would somehow scare Americans. Look, as Sarah Lerner puts it, Fox News keeps accidentally designing new campaign ads for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And that's exactly what they're doing in essence. By talking about her, by going out of their way to demonize her, not only are they revealing how unreasonable they are, but they're unwittingly promoting our policy ideas for us. So you'd think that I'd be mad that they're constantly bashing Ocasio-Cortez, but all they're doing is boosting her profile, giving her more name recognition, and exposing the Fox News audience to progressive policy ideas. In an appearance on MSNBC's Morning Joe, Rashida Tlaib was talking about her experience as a Muslim American and what her electoral victory means for other Muslim Americans across the country. And she was sharing a personal story about, you know, um, how Donald Trump's divisiveness has personally affected her. And she talked about how her son is afraid to reveal that he is a Muslim American, you know, with his peers and friends. And the host followed up with a question and may have inadvertently implied that Rashida Tlaib was only running an anti-Trump campaign. But Rashida Tlaib responded with a really powerful follow-up that makes me feel just so enthusiastic about her being in Congress because what she had to say here proves that she's the fighter for the people. You said divisiveness does not work. What are you going to do about unitedness, if you may? You know, uniting the country and addressing the real issues, healthcare, immigration, infrastructure, our veterans. What, are, what is your strategy 
on that versus attacking a president that is sexist. He says some horrible racist Look, things. Look, I'm not attacking him. I was talking oh, no. about yeah, being yeah. a mother. I was talking about the fact that my 13-year-old boy has to hide who he is. But I can tell you this. I didn't run to become the first Muslim woman elected. I ran because I have the third poorest congressional district in the country, where most of my schools don't even have clean water, where the corporate assault on working families in Detroit and Wayne County, where I represent, actually don't feel like they have any connection with our own government, that they feel like it's not about people. So I'm going to uplift their voices. I'm going to fight against that corporate greed that has infiltrated our United States Congress into our government, and I'm going to push back. And you know the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to fight for Medicare for all. I'm going to fight against discrimination. I'm going to fight against the ongoing uh, assault from the car insurance industry in the Michigan. We have the highest rates of car insurance because of the practice of redlining. I'm going to lift their voices up. That's what I'm going to do. And I will outwork the hate. I will outwork every single thing on the agenda of the right wing. I don't care if it's Trump or whoever it is that's leading uh, this the kind of push against the working families that I represent. But it's going to be loud and it's going to be very direct. And it's going to be very clear and it's going to be about those issues and those values my district did not vote for me because i'm muslim they voted for me because i have the heart and love and passion to give them a voice in the united states congress that person is soon going to be serving in the united states house of representatives think about that we have multiple people who are outspoken and unapologetically liberal and it's so refreshing to not only see them be elected, but actually hear their voices in mainstream news. Because could you imagine someone like Rashida Tlaib talking about Medicare for All a couple of years ago? I mean, we saw Bernie Sanders talk about this when he was running in 2016. And it, it almost felt like surreal to hear him talk about issues like Medicare for All that I supported passionately. So to see it just become so common now... It really shows the power that's behind the progressive movement. And we've got to give credit to Bernie Sanders for catalyzing this movement because this really is a slow-moving political revolution. I'm not talking about a revolution revolution. I'm talking about a political revolution where we change the way that we talk about politics. We monopolize policy discussions. You know, we change American discourse for the better. And this is evidence that we are starting to win. And what she said there was powerful because I think that at a time when there is so much bigotry against Muslims, when there's so much divisiveness, she is putting a face to Muslims so people like Donald Trump can no longer just tell you what Muslims are and they can speak for themselves now. But here's what she's saying that I think could maybe even change some hearts and minds. She says, quote, I'm going to fight against that corporate greed that has infiltrated our United States Congress and government, and I'm going to push back. And you know the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to fight for Medicare for all. I'm going to fight against discrimination. Now, she also brought up how the car insurance industry in the state of Michigan, which is her state, has been discriminatory, how they have outrageous prices and whatnot. And her message essentially is, regardless of what you think of me as a Muslim American, I'm going to fight for you. It doesn't matter if you think negatively about me, if you believe all the worst stereotypes about Muslim Americans, but I'm still going to fight for you to get health care. I'm still going to fight to make sure that your children 
have clean drinking water at their schools to make sure that people are able to thrive in this country, not just survive, but thrive, not just survive on the bare minimum, but actually be able to live a fulfilling life. This is what she's saying, and it's powerful. This is how you change hearts and minds. You give people who don't often have voices a platform and allow them to control the narrative. And I think that this really is going to be powerful. I hope that it's the start of a change in the mindset of Americans and not demonizing those we perceive to be the other. Because at the end of the day, we all bleed red. We're human beings. We all want the same thing. We want healthcare. We want education for our children. And we're not so different. She also says here, quote, I'm going to outwork the hate. I will outwork every single thing on the agenda of the right wing. I don't care if it's Trump or whoever it is that's leading the push against the working families I represent. But it's going to be very loud. It's going to be very direct. And it's going to be very clear. And again, this is so important because we need fighters in Congress. There are people who are too afraid to speak truth to power. There are people in Congress that don't recognize the power that they have in Congress to affect change. There are Americans who are struggling to put food on the table, who work 40 hours a week and struggle to pay rent. We have an incoming climate catastrophe if we don't act within the next decade. And we just need a couple of people to stand up and be vocal. And we're going to have that in the 2019 and 2020 congressional session. We are going to have that for the first time in what feels like forever. I mean, we had one apologetic leader in Bernie Sanders. We had another in Elizabeth Warren to a lesser extent. But if there's only one or two people speaking out, that's just not enough to change the narrative. It's not enough to monopolize discourse. But when you have other individuals who are strong, who are bold, who aren't willing to back down from what they believe in, like Rashida Tlaib and Ocasio-Cortez and Omar, then that actually is enough to get the ball rolling. It's enough to change hearts and minds in the country and also influence people in Congress that speaking truth to power and speaking out in favor of progressive policies, it's not so scary. I'm doing it. I'm doing it on MSNBC, on corporate media. So why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you speaking truth to power? So this is why there's so much momentum behind people like Bernie Sanders, Ocasio-Cortez, and Rashida Tlaib, because they actually are saying what we've all been screaming for years now, and people are paying attention. So I am thrilled at this incoming um, set of freshmen, congressmen and women, because we're going to have people fighting for us. Not, you know, too many but a small handful of people who are really able to further dialogue in American politics in a way that benefits the people, not just progressives, but the people. And I'm so happy about that. Ever since the 2000 election, when it was believed that Ralph Nader cost Al Gore the presidency, even though hundreds of thousands of Democratic voters voted for Bush, it's been kind of this common thing among liberals to just 
vote shame anyone who doesn't vote for the Democrat. And this rhetoric and this anti-third party sentiment has really ramped up since the 2016 election because there are many liberals who believe that Jill Stein cost Hillary Clinton the election even if it's the case that Gary Johnson technically took more votes away from Donald Trump. So what I've always said to liberals and centrist Democrats who like to lambast third-party voters, you know, these celebrities, Billy Eichner, who will say, please don't vote third-party ever, always vote for the Democrat, no matter what. My response is always, if you truly are worried about the spoiler effect, you need to back ranked choice voting. Because that's the only way we can end this conversation once and for all. But Democrats really have showed no interest in ranked choice voting because if we got ranked choice voting, then they know that it would be the case that third parties would be more popular and they don't want that. They have a vested interest in maintaining the two-party duopoly because if they do that, then voters will still feel forced to vote for them. But we have an example now that's really powerful because there's a Democrat by the name of Jared Golden, and he's really not a phenomenal candidate. He's fairly uninspiring when it comes to health care. He kind of pays lip service to the idea of Medicare for all, but won't explicitly say that he supports Medicare for all. So this was one of those circumstances where voters probably didn't feel too inspired by his campaign and maybe wanted to opt for a third party candidate. But we got the first real example of what ranked choice voting can do in order to, one, stop Republicans from winning, and two, allowing people to vote sincerely. Because as you all know, Maine has instituted ranked choice voting. And without it, this Democrat would have lost. So as Julia Conley of Common Dreams explains, Maine's second congressional district made history Thursday afternoon as it named Jared Golden the winner of his race for incumbent representative Bruce Palaquin's seat after the state used ranked choice voting for the first time in a national race to determine the winner. Shortly after, a federal judge rejected Palaquin's lawsuit in which he attempted to halt the ranked choice voting process, election officials forged ahead in their tabulation of the ballots and found that Golden won 50.53% of the vote compared to Poliquin's 49.47% of the vote. Now, as the League of Women Voters of Maine points out with this tweet here, without ranked choice voting, Jared Golden would have lost to the Republican, but since he received more second choice votes... Poliquin ended up losing, and Golden ended up winning overall. Now, as the author continues, the first time ranked choice voting is used in the state of Maine will have an instance where it will have made a difference. This is stunning. Larry Diamond, a political scientist at Stanford University, told the Portland Phoenix ahead of the vote tabulation. Either way, it's going to validate the logic of it, and it's going to make for fairer elections. Maine voters reaffirmed their support for RCV last June after a previous vote in favor of the system was blocked by the legislature, ensuring that voters in the 2nd District could rank the four candidates for Paula Quinn's seat in order from their favorite to least favorite when they went to the polls on Election Day. One of the candidates would have had to gather more than 50% 
of the first choice voters in order for the election to be called. When Poliquin won only 46% of the vote and Golden won 45.9%, election officials prepared to distribute two independent candidate supporters second and third choices until either the Democrat or Republican gained a majority. Maine's plan to become the first state to use RCV for a federal election was briefly threatened when Poliquin filed his lawsuit claiming that it was unconstitutional to allow voters to rank their choices in order to ensure they are represented by a lawmaker with the majority of support. So in the very first federal election where ranked choice voting was implemented, it made all the difference. All the difference in the world. Now, for those of you who are unclear as to how this works, here's a quick demonstration as to what it means to rank your voting, voting choices and what this would look like in practice. Pick your favorite color. The ranked choice voting way. Instead of voting for just one color, you get to rank your top three. Well, purple is the best, but if I can't have purple, I want blue. And if neither of those wins, I guess I can live with orange. Now, let's count up everybody's votes. Under ranked choice voting rules, it's not enough just to get the most votes. You need a majority. More than 50% of the votes. Purple's ahead, but it has only 7 votes. It needs at least 11 to win. So we eliminate the color in last place. Sorry, Orange fans. We're going to your second choice. Two more for green. One for purple. But no color has 11 votes yet. Still no majority. Bye-bye, blue. One more for purple. Four for green. And we have a winner. The ranked choice voting way. So I don't see how you can watch that video and not conclude that ranked choice voting makes all the sense in the world. Because when you live in a two-party system, you need to allow voters some way to vote sincerely. That is, to vote for the person who they genuinely want to support. But oftentimes, you see what's known as strategic voting. And people vote for the person who they don't necessarily like the most, but who they think has the best shot at beating the person who they like the least. So, I don't know why the TV just did that but whatever um <laughs> so getting back to what i was saying um it gives voters the chance to vote for who they want to vote for there's no gun being held to their head forcing them to vote for a party who they don't really like just to prevent the shittier candidate from winning it stops lesser of evilism at the ballot box so it's incredibly important so if you're one of those liberals who scoff at the idea of people voting third party be it for the Libertarian Party or the Green Party, which it's usually always targeted towards the Green Party, you should be the loudest proponent for ranked choice voting, especially after seeing what it did for Jared Golden. You should be organizing right now to make sure that ranked choice voting is a ballot initiative in your state. Because if you're going to sit here and vote shame, it's just not going to work, okay? People are going to vote for who they're going to vote for. And at a time when voter turnout is low and we struggle to get people to vote, I don't think we should be vote shaming anyone who's still voting left, okay? I don't think that we should be discouraging people from voting when they can still come out and 
support progressive ballot initiatives, which would help us all. So if you are one of the individuals, one of the celebrities that loves to talk down and scold third-party voters, you should be screaming from the rooftops and using your platform to push for ranked choice voting. And guess what? I'll make it easy for you. There's already an initiative by Representative Ro Khanna who proposed a bill that would do just that. It's H.R. 3057, and it wouldn't only implement nationwide ranked choice voting, it would end gerrymandering and move from single-member districts to multi-member districts. So that way, our electoral system would become a lot more proportional and a lot more fair. The only reason why Democrats and Republicans, for that matter, because this would benefit them as well, um, voters, that is, not the party, the reason why the party establishments don't want to implement ranked choice voting, because they like being able to scare voters with the spoiler effect. They like essentially holding a gun to voters' head, saying, vote for me no matter what, or you're going to have the Republican win, and it's going to be worse for you in the long run. They love that. But if you are one of the individuals who's not part of the uh, the party establishment, you have no fucking excuse. You have no excuse whatsoever. All those celebrities bemoaning Green Party candidates and third-party voters, this is your ticket to eliminating that issue once and for all. If you want Democrats to win, if you want to eliminate the spoiler effect, and most importantly, if you want to defeat Republicans, which is just an insane right-wing extremist party, we need nationwide ranked choice voting. Call your legislator and ask him or her to co-sponsor HR 3057 because that is a phenomenal way to build momentum for this particular bill. Or you can do what you can at the state level and speak to a local, you know, uh, DSA uh, chapter or maybe a local Democratic Party uh, chapter, state Democratic Party, and get them to try to push to make this a ballot initiative in your state. Because what we needed was one state to implement ranked choice voting in order to get the ball rolling for everyone else. And now hopefully we're going to see the domino effect, just like pot. Colorado legalized pot, and now, what, 10 states have recreational marijuana? So it just took one state to do it, and it's already proving to be really important. So I'm really excited that we're already seeing the results of ranked choice voting and why it's so important, because it just builds a case for RCV. Shocking news coming out of Washington, D.C. President Donald Trump has tweeted something that is really fucking dumb. Yeah, he states via Twitter, trying to steal two big elections in Florida. We are watching closely. Now, obviously, he's referring to the recount efforts that are currently underway in the state of Florida when it comes to numerous elections. So think about how deluded you have to be to think that a recount is tantamount to election stealing. You'd have to be pretty deluded, right? But this comes after we saw some of the most dirty voter suppression tactics we've seen in a really long time. In the states of Kansas and Georgia, we had secretaries of state overseeing their own elections. We had Brian Kemp purge thousands upon thousands of voters off the rolls. We see polling stations being moved out of majority-minority cities. We see voter ID laws being imposed on Native American communities 
that don't have addresses. The government does not recognize their address. If they live on a reservation, the government will not even recognize a P.O. box as a legitimate address. But nonetheless, according to Donald Trump, those weren't attempts to steal the elections. It's actually the Democrats in their effort to recount the election and making sure that every single vote is counted. That is stealing. Actually, to the contrary, that's democracy. Wanting to make sure that every single vote is counted, that is not just something that's important, it's essential if you want to live in a democracy. Now, as he accuses Democrats of trying to steal the election, let's hear from Democrats themselves. What did Andrew Gillum say? Because there's been a lot of controversy among the right after he conceded and is now unconceding. This is what he has to say that is so controversial, according to Republicans. I am replacing uh, my words of concession with an uncompromised and unapologetic call that we count every single vote. We count every vote. Uh, and I say this recognizing uh, that uh, my fate in this may or may not change. Uh, what I do know is that every single Floridian who took time to go out, to cast their vote, to participate in this process, deserve uh, the comfort of knowing that in a democratic society and in this process, every vote will be counted. So he's doing exactly what everyone who believes in democracy should be doing. But before I go any further, I do want to shed a little bit more light on the situation and tell you exactly what's going on. So for that, we'll go to John Schwartz of The Intercept, who reports at midnight on election day last Tuesday, vote tallies showed Republican candidates ahead in key races in Florida, Georgia, and Arizona. However, many votes remained to be counted in all three states. The stakes are high. Two Senate seats, Florida and Arizona, and two governorships, Florida and Georgia, plus some lower offices. And as the count has proceeded, the Democratic candidates in each case has gained more votes than the Republican, narrowing the margin or, in the case of the Senate election in Arizona, taking the lead. Republicans, led by President Donald Trump, have responded by declaring that counting these votes is somehow fraudulent. The GOP's rhetoric has been particularly preposterous in Florida, where Governor Rick Scott is attempting to switch offices by ousting incumbent Democratic Senator Bill Nelson. Scott's Tuesday night margin of 50,000 votes is now down to 15,000, and he's demanded that the Florida Department of Law Enforcement investigate some unspecified malfeasance. Each race now appears likely close enough to trigger a recount, or in the case of the Georgia governor's race, a runoff. So understand what the outrage from Donald Trump and Floridian Republicans is all about. They don't want the votes to be counted because if the votes are counted, well, there might be enough votes to cost Republicans the election. In other words, they don't care about democracy. They don't want to make sure that all voices are heard, that all votes are counted. All they want is to make sure that they win by all means necessary. And Donald Trump, in implying that recounting the votes and making sure that every single vote is counted, more importantly, is election theft, that is just a level of delusion, the likes of which we haven't seen from an American president before. Again, it's them 
who were doing the voter suppression tactics. And now they have the gall to accuse Democrats of trying to steal elections because they have the audacity to call for a recount. I mean, how dare them? How dare you call for a recount and make sure that in a democracy, all votes are counted? I mean, this is this is insane. This is what Republicans do. Whenever there's an accusation that's lobbed against them, they flip it. They turn it around on their opponents and say, actually, I'm not guilty. You're guilty. No, you. We're not suppressing the votes. You're trying to steal votes by counting all of the votes. Actually, by counting the vote, if you're against recounts, if you're against every single vote being counted, then by definition, you are the ones in favor of stealing the votes. So this isn't anything that's unusual from the president. It's it's certainly not even a surprising tweet. But regardless, we can't normalize this type of behavior because he's trying to delegitimize elections in the most insane way possible. He's saying counting all the votes is tantamount to election theft unbelievable. But even if it's unsurprising, we still have to make sure that we call him out because this type of rhetoric is absolutely harmful. Of course, if you live in a democracy, you should be in favor of making sure that every single vote is counted. And if you're not in favor of that, then you can go live in an authoritarian regime, move to Saudi Arabia, move to North Korea, because that's where they don't count the votes. In America, every single vote is supposed to matter. Every single vote is supposed to count. And if you're against that, then get the fuck out of the country. Just hours after the Democratic Party took back the House of Representatives on November 6th, Nancy Pelosi decided to rob the base of what little optimism they had by calling for bipartisanship almost immediately. And we will strive for bipartisanship. No! And of course, she doubled down just a few days later by saying this in an interview with CNN's Chris Cuomo. We have an obligation to try to find common ground. No! So naturally, it seems as if Nancy Pelosi is already waving the white flag. She's signaling that her and Democrats are willing to surrender. They're willing to roll over and die and succumb to whatever Republicans demand and not fight for a true progressive agenda. But hold, because they just decided on legislation they'll be introducing first. That's surprisingly adequate. Yeah, we're talking about the same Democrats who lost a thousand seats in legislatures across the country. Now, they're going to introduce something that's actually good. So as Peter Overby of NPR reports, Democrats will take control of the U.S. House in January with big items topping their legislative to-do list, remove obstacles to voting, close loopholes in government ethics law, and reduce the influence of political money. Party leaders say the first legislative vote in the House will come on H.R. 1, a magnum opus of provisions that Democrats believe will strengthen U.S. Democratic institutions and traditions. It's three very basic things that I think the public wants to see, said Representative John Sarbanes, who spearheads campaign finance and government ethics efforts for the House Democratic Caucus. He said H.R. 1 will demonstrate that we hear that message loud and clear, but even Sarbanes admits the quick vote is just the first step. Republicans who control the Senate are unlikely to pass the bill, and President Trump is unlikely to sign it. Give us the gavel in the Senate in 2020, and we'll pass it in the Senate, Sarbanes said. Give us a pen in the Oval Office, and we'll sign those kinds of reforms into law. The bill would establish automatic voter registration and reinvigorate the Voting Rights Act, 
crippled by a Supreme Court decision in 2013. It would take away redistricting power from state legislatures and give it to independent commissions. Other provisions would overturn the Supreme Court's Citizens United ruling, which declared political spending is First Amendment free speech. They would mandate more disclosure of outside money and establish a public financing match for small contributions. So hang on a second. You're telling me that Democrats not only have an actual policy agenda going into 2019, but they have a strategy to push for that because their strategy in saying, if you elect us, we will sign X policy into law is something that I've been saying they should do with regard to other policies that are populist, like Medicare for all and nationwide legalization of marijuana. They're actually doing something that is uh, good and common sense Color me surprised. Now, if you were to add paper ballots to that bill and rank choice voting and making voting a national holiday uh, or elections a national holiday, rather, that would be a virtually perfect bill. Now, is it possible that Democrats introduce this piece of legislation and then run away from it entirely and never mention it again? Yes, that's possible, given the history of Democrats. Is it possible that they introduce this legislation and there's so many amendments that are added that ends up watering it down to the point that it just becomes unrecognizable? Yes, that's also a possibility. But is this a good start for Democrats? Yes, this is a very good start for Democrats. And if they did this with other policies like Medicare for all, as I just mentioned, uh, nationwide marijuana legalization, breaking up the big banks and a federal jobs guarantee, and promised to sign all of these bills into law if Americans give them power, they would be unstoppable. Because even if you are dissatisfied with Democrats in other areas, and we all have a reason to be dissatisfied, if they push for something like Medicare for all that would literally save lives, that wouldn't just get people to support them. They wouldn't just acquiesce, but they would enthusiastically support Democrats again. So why are they doing this? One, I think maybe some people within the party finally are beginning to realize if we want to win, we have to actually come with a strategy. We need a legislative agenda and we need to do what the people want us to do. And second of all, I think that you have yourself to thank. Yes, you watching, because it's your continued pressure on Democrats, your relentlessness over the last two years to get them to move left that maybe is starting to have a small effect. Maybe a small effect, but it's an effect nonetheless. That's really important. And also, when we have freshman congresswomen like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, who will be really monopolizing discourse when it comes to policy, I think that other lawmakers are realizing that they're going to have to be more like those progressives if they want to, one, have any media attention, right? Because all of a sudden, the media likes figures like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because the enthusiasm is palpable for progressive candidates and two if they if they want to actually get anything done you've got to have the grassroots behind you and those people like Rashida Tlaib and Ocasio-Cortez they're the ones who have the momentum behind them so maybe some within the party are beginning to see that this is the only way 
they're going to be able to take on Republicans. Now, is this also, you know, the cynic in me wonders if this is just, you know, an attempt from maybe leadership in the party like Nancy Pelosi to possibly thwart off an insurgent challenge to her leadership role? Possibly. And I'll plug the petition that I created to make Barbara Lee House Speaker because I still think that that needs to happen. But I think it's really important to give Democrats credit where it's due. I'm all about you know, that positive reinforcement. This is a great step in the right direction. It's a great first step. But let's keep up the momentum, Democrats. We need more of this. I think they're doing something that they haven't done in a really long time. They're starting to kind of maybe sort of listen to the people. And good on you, Democrats. It's a good start. Going into 2019, it's very clear that progressives have a lot of momentum, and what I'm really thankful for are the select few of congressional Democrats who are progressive, who are really fighting hard for policies that we care about. And one of those individuals is Pramila Jayapal, who is making it very clear that she is not going to let the issue of Medicare for All fall by the wayside. So as Peter Sullivan of The Hill reports, Representative Pramila Jayapal, a top progressive Democrat in the House on Tuesday, called for hearings and a vote on Medicare for All legislation now that her party has taken back the House. We are going to be pushing for it to get a hearing. To have this debate on the floor, Jayapal said on an organizing call with the National Nurses United Union on Tuesday night. Jayapal, who is co-chair of the Medicare for All caucus in the House, said it is not enough for Democrats to just say they are co-sponsors of Medicare for All. Now that Democrats have won back the House, she said, when we have that majority, we need to make sure that we put it to use. However, House Democratic leadership has not expressed a willingness to hold a vote on Medicare for All, and top leaders have not signed onto the legislation. Organizers from liberal groups led by National Nurses United said on the call that they are going to be organizing grassroots support, including phone calls targeting the 13 House Democrats on the key committees of Ways and Means and Energy and Commerce, who they said have not signed onto the bill yet. Senator Bernie Sanders, the idea's leading champion, also joined the call and called for massive grassroots support to push for Medicare for All. Jayapal told The Hill earlier Tuesday that she and other members of the Medicare for All caucus are working on a revised version of the legislation known as H.R. 676, which she hopes to come to an agreement on over the next month to be ready for introduction in the next session of Congress. Now, realistically speaking, if she accomplishes what she hopes to here, if they debate Medicare for All and they hold a vote on it, will this ultimately be signed into law? Well, even if it passes the House, no, because obviously it's not going to pass the Senate and Donald Trump certainly wouldn't sign this into law. But what she's doing is still a really important first step to actually getting Medicare for All codified into law because this is the process that is really going to help us down the line. In order for anything to pass, you need to build a coalition. You need to build a consensus. And you really need to get the momentum going so that way when Democrats actually do take back the Senate, when they do take back the White House one day, they'll already have a lot of the groundwork put in. Now, additionally, another reason why this is important is because this is 
forcing Republicans to show their cards, have a vote on it, and make them expose themselves, make them vote against Medicare for All, so that way the American people know exactly where they stand. Once they hold a vote on it, what Pramila Jayapal and Bernie Sanders can do is they can say 70% of Americans, including 50% of Republicans, more than 50% of Republicans, support Medicare for All, and all of these House Republicans voted against Medicare for all. They voted against you and what you want. Now, additionally, this is great because it will expose corporate Democrats who are against Medicare for all and get them to also show their cards so that way grassroots activists know who to target. Now, speaking about knowing who to target, they named key individuals, key players on the Ways and Means Committee as well as the Energy and Commerce Committee. And they said that there were 13 Democrats. I want to take the time to tell you their names and their phone numbers so that way we can actually give them a call and let them know that Medicare for All is something that we will not be backing down from. Those individuals include Lloyd Doggett. His phone number is 202-225-4865. John Larson, 202-225-2265. Ron Kind, 202-225-5506. Bill Pasquel, 202-225-5751. Terry Sewell, 202-225-2665. Susan Del Bene, 202-225-6311, Frank Pallone, 202-225-4671, Ben Ray Luan, 202-225-6190, Kurt Schrader, 202-225-5711, Joseph Kennedy III, 202-225-5931, Tony Cardenas, 202-225-6131, Raul Ruiz, 202-225-5330, and Scott Peters, 202-225-0508. Now, I don't want to undermine what National Nurses United is doing because maybe it's the case that they have a script that they want you to follow that they think will be most influential when you call your lawmakers. But look, I'm just going to call and kindly urge them to uh, back Medicare for All. And the person who I'm going to be calling is Kurt Schrader because he's from Oregon. Oregon is my state. He may not be my representative, but you know, he is someone who I think I have the most influence over because I'm from his state. Um, so his number is 202-225-5711. And I'm just going to make a really simple plea for him to co-sponsor HR 676 uh, when it's reintroduced in uh, 2019. Please leave a message for the congressman at the tone. Thanks, and have a great day. Record your message after the tone. When you've finished, you can hang up or press 1 for more options. Hi, Congressman Schrader. I noticed that you haven't co-sponsored H.R. 676, which is the Medicare for All bill, which would literally save lives and stop thousands of Americans from medical bankruptcy. So I just want to urge you to support that. It will be reintroduced in the next congressional session. Representative Jayapal will be uh, reintroducing this, I believe. So I just want to kindly urge you to support H.R. 676. Um, or we're going to primary you and get someone in there who will. So thank you. Okay, I tried not to be rude or be a dick, but I just couldn't help myself. The fact that he hasn't is kind of absurd, but try to be polite, people. <laughs> 
I'm terrible. Um, I'm like that asshole boss that no matter what you do, you know, I always am like, well, why don't we strive a little bit higher next time? I just, I can't because at this point, Medicare for all, when you see all the momentum, if you're a Democrat and you haven't signed on to it, I've got no patience anymore for you. So um, be kind, don't do what I'm doing. And perhaps maybe it will be important for us to wait for National Nurses United because I think just flooding all of these individuals, these 13 Democrats on these committees with calls at once will be more effective. So you don't have to call right away, but I just want to put their numbers out there because I do think it's important that we start to kind of get the ball rolling and let them know what they can expect if they don't back Medicare for All. But getting back to Pramila Jayapal, she's someone who I respect perhaps more so than most people in Congress. You know, besides her and Ro Khanna and Raul Grijalva, they were the few that were actually standing up for the people. And I'm just glad that they have more allies in Congress now in, you know, Ocasio-Cortez and Ayanna Presley and Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. I'm glad that they're going to have more allies in Congress who will help them push the envelope on this issue. Because if lawmakers are hoping that we're eventually going to give up on Medicare for all, that's just not going to happen because if we don't get Medicare for all now, we're never going to get it. I don't know that we've ever had this much momentum for Medicare for all. And with 70% of the country on our side, when we've won the debate, there's absolutely no reason to not push for this relentlessly. So we're not backing down. And this is something that lawmakers need to realize. And if they're not willing to support Medicare for all, then they may lose their jobs over this. It's that serious because this is literally an issue that is life and death for some Americans. So if they're not with us, they're against us. It's that simple. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell went on Fox News after the midterms and he said something, a specific word in particular, that gave me pause. <clears throat> not that, this. We had a great day yesterday and increased our number in the Senate. We still have a majority. We're still going to be con able to confirm uh, judges and cabinet mm -hmm. members and uh, hopefully we'll be able to work out some bipartisan deals. Bipartisan deals, bipartisan deals. <clears throat> bipartisan deals, as the president indicated, with Speaker Pelosi and the new Democratic House. Really, Mitch? You're going to speak about bipartisanship now? Really? <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> but guess what? This is Mitch McConnell, so his hypocrisy knows no bounds. And look, he's the least popular politician in the country for a reason. Now, not only did he double down on his hilarious call for bipartisanship, but he even penned an op-ed in Fox News calling again for bipartisanship that's titled, quote, Will Dems work with us or simply put partisan politics ahead of the country? Oh, okay, I see. So after breaking records when it comes to how obstructionist your party was during Obama's presidency, now you want to talk about bipartisanship. When your party's in power, I see how it is. I mean, wow, the hypocrisy is unbelievable here. It boggles my mind. Holy shit, Mitch, you've got a lot of fucking nerve. Wow. <laughs> Holy shit. Now look, the title in and of itself is so comical and so brazenly hypocritical that I don't think we even need to read this. It doesn't warrant further reading, but nonetheless, I'm going to be extra kind to Mitch here when I don't need to be and read a couple of paragraphs that did stand out to me. 
Last Tuesday, I was proud to see that the American people voted to keep Republicans in control of the U.S. Senate, but we also learned that come January, the Republican Senate majority will be dealing with the House of Representatives under Democratic control. Needless to say, the past two years of unified Republican government will be remembered as a period of historic productivity. That's just a joke. And looking ahead to the coming year, there will be no shortage of opportunities to continue this impressive record of cooperation across the aisle and across the Capitol. What we can make of those opportunities will depend on our Democratic colleagues. Will they choose to go it alone and simply make political points? Or will they choose to work together and actually make a difference? In other words, are they going to be obstructionist assholes like I was or like my party was? Or are they actually going to be nice after we just slapped them across the face, spit in their eyes, and told them to go fuck themselves over and over again over the last eight years? That's what he's asking, essentially. So look, Mitch McConnell, he might be the biggest hypocrite on the planet. Republicans set a new record for filibusters. He employed the nuclear option in the Senate for Neil Gorsuch. He stole a Supreme Court seat from President Obama and bragged about doing so. One of my proudest moments is when I looked at Barack Obama in the eye and I said, Mr. President, you will not fill this Supreme Court vacancy. Now that was after he pledged to make Obama a one-term president. Our top political priority over the next two years should be to deny President Obama a second term. So Mitch McConnell, of all people, <clears throat> has the nerve to call for bipartisanship when it would conveniently make his party look better. I've got a better idea, Mitch. How about you go fuck yourself? Because the American people hate you. And I hope that Democrats obstruct absolutely every single thing that Republicans try to do unless it benefits the American people. But since your party has no interest in representing average Americans, I doubt that that's going to be the case. So as a result, I hope they obstruct you in every way possible. Because that's what you deserve after your party was obstructionist to Obama's agenda in an unprecedented fashion. So to Mitch McConnell's plea here for bipartisanship all of a sudden... I hope that Democrats do to you exactly what you did to them and spit in your face, metaphorically speaking, because you're a joke, Mitch. You're a joke. Now, you know, fortunately for Mitch, I don't think that Democrats are willing to be as dirty as Mitch McConnell when they absolutely should. I mean, we have Nancy Pelosi talking about uh, bipartisanship and cooperating with the GOP, so odds are he's going to get what he wants. We will strive for bipartisanship. <clears throat> we have an obligation to try to find common ground. <clears throat> the American people know what you're all about, Mitch McConnell. You're a terrible politician. You've basically been doing everything in your power to ruin the country all because of partisanship and because of your obstructionist behavior. So go fuck yourself, Mitch. I hope that you never have another peaceful meal in public again because of all that you've been doing to ruin this country. I mean, this is absurd to call for bipartisanship. Of all people, you're the last person who should be calling for bipartisanship, Mitch McConnell.
Well, the 2020 presidential election campaign season has officially kicked off because we now have the very first Democratic Party presidential contender announcing their candidacy. And that individual is Richard Ojeda. Now, his name might sound familiar because he actually just challenged Republican Carol Miller in West Virginia's 3rd Congressional District. And the reason why he got national coverage is because he ran a really unique campaign with ads like this. I'm Richard Ojeda, and people say that I'm angry. Well, angry is an understatement. When I come home and I find that I got children in my backyard that have it worse than the kids that I saw in Iraq and Afghanistan, I can't accept that. When I see companies using bankruptcy loopholes to keep from paying our coal miners the pensions that they work for, I will not sit quiet. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been sold out. We've been sold out by people like Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, and the Washington Insiders. I approve this message because I am angry and I'm ready to fight back. So I absolutely admired him and he certainly was a unique candidate because he was willing to fight and he's willing to stand up to his own party because to name drop Nancy Pelosi in an ad like that, I mean, to say it's admirable, that's an understatement. I absolutely respect what he did there. Now, if you're looking for details on his platform, well, he doesn't have much up yet because if you go to voteojetta.com, he essentially hasn't laid out all the issues he's in favor of, but he is taking a pretty strong stand against corruption, and he's mandating that any cabinet appointee donate net worth over a million to charity, and the money that cabinet appointees would be allowed to make after serving would be capped off at $250,000 per year, including their pension, and this is to prevent them from being corrupt and stop that revolving door in Washington, D.C., and it will also mandate that members of Congress have to be on the same type of healthcare plans that everyday Americans are on as well. Now, what he has posted, in addition to just those details, is an announcement video, and here that is. I'm Richard Ojeda, and I approve this message. I never dreamed that I would come home only to find children in my own backyard that have it worse than the kids I saw in Afghanistan. I spent decades fighting for this country, and now it's time to go to D.C. and defend our homeland. This is what you all are fighting for! So make no mistake about it, I will stand with the working class citizens over all else. If they don't like it, hit the road. So the question is, if he just lost an election, why is anyone taking him seriously? How is he considered a credible candidate? And the answer is because what he managed to do in West Virginia's 3rd Congressional District, in spite of the fact that he lost, was still nothing short of amazing. Because as Ryan Grimm explains, Richard Ojeda is running for president. Ojeda, a West Virginia state senator and retired U.S. Army major, lost his congressional bid in the state's 3rd District on Tuesday, but saw the largest swing of Trump voters toward Democrats in any district around the country, overperforming 2016 by more than 35 points. Still, in a district that Donald Trump carried by 49 points, Ojeda, who rose to prominence because of his support for the teacher strike in West Virginia, lost by 12 points. Ojeda's case for his candidacy is straightforward. The Democratic Party has gotten away from its roots, and he has a unique ability to win over a white, black, and brown working class coalition by arguing from a place of authority that Trump is a populist fraud. He's launching his campaign with an anti-corruption focus that draws a contrast with Trump's inability to, quote, drain the swamp. 
So I think that the people who are taking his candidacy seriously are doing so for good reasons. Because what he managed to do in a deep red district, that's actually really admirable. And it kind of shows that if you run unapologetically progressive campaigns, or at least an anti-corruption populist campaign, you can be successful. You might not win, but you're definitely going to improve your odds. So the question is, would I be willing to support Richard Ojeda? Well, look, even though I was rooting for him in the congressional race that he was running in in 2018 in the midterms, my expectations and my standards, quite frankly, they change exponentially when we go from talking about a congressional candidate to the presidency. And if we are considering him for the third district, if I were in that district, I would undoubtedly vote for Richard Ojeda, and I was enthusiastically rooting for him. But in terms of him being president... Yeah, not so much. <laughs> and the reason why I say that is because there's some glaring red flags that I can't get past. So as Ryan Grimm explains, Ojeda's authority and one of his greatest liabilities would come in part from his own previous support of Trump in the 2016 general election. After backing Senator Bernie Sanders in the primary, Ojeda refused to support Hillary Clinton, seeing her as an embodiment of the party's drift toward the elite. So he's right on the substance. He's right in saying that the Democratic Party has drifted away from the people and now they're just representing elites. But to go from supporting Bernie Sanders to Donald Trump, who is the antithesis of everything that Bernie Sanders stands for, that's something that I can't personally get past. And to correctly acknowledge that Hillary Clinton was the embodiment of elitism, but not see how Donald Trump was also the embodiment of elitism, that tells me that Richard Ojeda lacks something that is crucial for a presidential candidate. And what he lacks is foresight. You've got to have foresight if I'm going to support you, if you're going to be the president. And to not see that Donald Trump was the fraud that he is and always was, to recognize correctly that Hillary Clinton was the embodiment of elitism, but Donald Trump wasn't, I can't get past that. So even if I do think he is or was a phenomenal candidate, well, as a presidential candidate, that's different than him just being a congressional candidate. And in many ways, I think that Richard Ojeda single-handedly set a new standard in terms of how Democrats should campaign against Republicans. Him and Andrew Gillum combined showed that you have to fight, and that's really important, and I'm thankful that Richard Ojeda did that during this congressional race. But with that being said, Richard Ojeda, as a presidential candidate, just simply does not have the credibility or the progressive record needed to get my support. I think that if I were Richard Ojeda, I would try to run for Congress again, maybe challenge Shelley Moore Capito, because she's up for re-election in 2020. But to run for president after you just ran for Congress, I think that if you're going to win over progressives, you're going to have a difficult time doing that. Now, that's not to say that he doesn't have a great platform when it comes to anti-corruption. I think that that's a populist message that could resonate with Democratic Party voters. And look, I'm fascinated to see him interact with corporate Democrats like Cory Booker and Joe Biden. But with that being said, 
he voted for Donald Trump in 2016, and that's really going to be difficult for people to get past. I don't know that I could see past that. And also, he fails another one of my most crucial litmus tests. So in an interview with Ellen Nelson of Vox, when asked if he'd support Medicare for All, he stated, quote, I support a public option. I think we should give people the ability to buy into Medicare, and I believe if we can get that, all the other insurance companies out there would have to compete with Medicare, which would mean they would have to lower premiums and offer better benefits. Yeah, sorry, that's just, that's not good enough. To ask for a public option at this point when we have so much momentum for Medicare for All, when 70% of the country supports Medicare for All, including a majority of Republicans now, you have no reason to not support Medicare for All, especially if you're uncorrupted like Richard Ojeda, especially if you don't take corporate PAC money. That's not all. He said in a tweet that he is against abortion. Now, that doesn't necessarily tell us how he'll vote exactly when it comes to women's reproductive rights, but it's just another red flag. So he's right on the substance when it comes to anti-corruption, and I think that that message could resonate. And I do think he's a serious contender. I think that we should take him seriously. But with that being said, he just doesn't have a progressive record. Bernie Sanders, conversely, is someone with decades of progressive votes and speaking out and having the foresight to speak out against wars and be ahead of his time when it comes to issues like gay rights and whatnot. So I think that if Richard Ojeda really wanted to be successful or maybe run day, one day run for president, he should do what he can to make his way into the United States Congress or Senate and then build up his resume. But currently, he hasn't done enough. He's been a state senator for two years and he has done some phenomenal things. He's very responsive to his constituents. He supported a medic medical marijuana provision. But look, it's going to be interesting, right? I think that he's going to bring something unique to the conversation. But with that being said, uh, I would not be supporting him. I don't think he's progressive enough. Um, I hope he runs again in West Virginia for Congress or, you know, runs for the Senate. But I personally just, I can't get behind someone who is that conservative and doesn't support Medicare for all. There's only been a small handful of people that have officially announced their candidacy for the presidency in 2020, but thankfully, it's already shaping up to be a pretty solid field. And, you know, this is only the beginning. So I do want to talk about someone who has already announced. His name is Andrew Yang, and he comes from the business world, which isn't necessarily a good thing in my opinion, but he does have a solidly progressive platform which includes campaign finance reform and the elimination of super PACs, legalizing marijuana, Medicare for all, statehood for Puerto Rico, net neutrality, increasing workers' rights, paid sick leave, allowing post offices to provide banking services to Americans, and those are just some of many policy proposals that he has listed on his website. However, he doesn't seem to support tuition-free public college. He also doesn't say anything about student loan debt cancellation, and also he plans to curtail what's known as the revolving door in Washington, D.C., where people leave federal office and then they'll go give speeches, like Obama did to Wall Street and make millions of dollars, or they'll just go and work for the industry that they were once overseeing. So his goal is 
to put a lifetime ban on those types of Wall Street speeches, but at the same time, he is pledging to give federal lawmakers a raise as a result in order to dissuade them from trying to go to the private sector and basically work for the industry that they once regulated, which is a form of corruption. So I don't necessarily agree with that. I'm glad that he acknowledges the problem that is the revolving door in Washington, D.C., but the solution itself, that doesn't really resonate with me. However, by and large, to be fair to him, he has a really solidly progressive platform. And if he were to back student loan debt cancellation and free four-year public college, he would be a virtually perfect candidate. But those are all of the issues that he's not as well known for because the issue he's essentially running on is universal basic income. And this is both a campaign ad as well as his plea for UBI and why it's important. We are experiencing the greatest technological and economic shift in human history. We need a way to help millions of Americans transition through this period. And a universal basic income is the best and most efficient way to do that. Hello, I'm Andrew Yang, and I'm running for president as a Democrat in 2020. I believe I have the right vision, priorities, and values to improve the lives of millions of Americans. Seven years ago, I started Venture for America to train hundreds of young entrepreneurs to build businesses in Detroit, Cleveland, Baltimore, and other communities across the country. Together, we helped create thousands of jobs. But during this time, I came to realize that technology has already wiped out 4 million manufacturing jobs in Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and other states. And it's about to do the same thing to people who work in retail, food service and food prep, customer service, transportation, as well as industries like insurance, accounting, medicine, and law. I saw so much over the last number of years traveling this country. What I experienced was eye-opener to me, where I would walk through abandoned neighborhoods and boarded up businesses. I have two young boys, and I'm deeply concerned about the future that they're gonna grow up in. If we don't change things dramatically, they're gonna grow up in a country with fewer and fewer opportunities and a handful of companies and individuals reaping the gains from new technologies while the rest of us struggle to find opportunities and eventually lose our jobs. And it doesn't need to be that way. Under my plan, every American adult will receive $1,000 a month, free and clear, paid for by a new tax on the companies that are benefiting most from automation. If we provide a universal basic income, Americans will be able to go back to school, move for a new opportunity, start their own business, and really have their head up as they plan for the future. With your help, we can make universal basic income a reality. Join us and let's build a new kind of economy, one that puts people first. I love it. Not only is it bold, but it's just, it's common sense. When you look at the trajectory for American jobs, automation is going to displace millions of American workers. And I don't know that anyone has proposed a feasible solution to deal with this. So I love that he's really making this the centerpiece of his campaign. I've said before that, you know, if I were running, I would run on issues like Medicare for All and really put that front and center. And he's choosing to put UBI front and center, which I think is actually 
really smart. Um, and even if his candidacy is a long shot, you know, odds are he won't win because he doesn't just he just doesn't have the name recognition to be um, to be realistic here. The thing is that Andrew Yang just being on a debate stage, if he's allowed on the debate stages, that will influence the discussion in 2020 in a really positive way. And he's the only candidate proposing UBI to this extent. However, there is another candidate that is flirting with the idea of UBI and even propose what I would call UBI light. And that person might actually surprise you because it's not Bernie Sanders. Can you guess who it is? If you had to think, who else in the 2020 field would possibly propose UBI? I don't think it's who you think it's going to be. It's Kamala Harris. So she's proposing a tax plan called the Lift the Middle Class Act that can be, I think, described as UBI light. And as Jordan Weissman of Slate explains, it would essentially send up to 500 each month to working families. It's not universal basic income, but it's as close as we've seen to one from a serious 2020 prospect. So credit to Kamala Harris here because this is actually a pretty solid tax plan. But just looking at it, there are two glaring issues with it, especially when juxtaposed with uh, Andrew Yang's plan. First of all is if you start negotiations at a universal basic income or, you know, a tax credit for Americans at $500 a month, you're going to end negotiations and actually get legislation that looks more like $250 or $200 per month. So I don't think that it behooves Kamala Harris to start at $500 if she actually wants $500 to be what Americans get each month. Another issue is that by means testing this, by saying this is a tax just for the middle class, well, that allows the right to deem this as a welfare program, which means that it's not going to get the public support that other social safety net programs have, like Social Security, for example. And even if the right would be unfair in characterizing this as welfare, since this is technically a tax credit, you know that that's exactly what they're going to do. However, with Andrew Yang's plan, if my understanding is correct... He wouldn't means test it. It would be offered to all Americans. And even though that doesn't necessarily seem like a good idea at face value, it does make it less vulnerable to attacks from the right and also would likely boost public support for it since higher income individuals who also receive it couldn't deem everyone else who also receives the same $1,000 payment from the government every month as moochers, since they're also benefiting from it. So Andrew Yang's UBI plan is really, really solid. But to be fair to Kamala Harris, this is still a huge step in the right direction. Now, I will say this, Kyle Kalinske of Secular Talk, he made the point a couple of weeks ago that if you're going to push for something like UBI, you need to make sure that you nail the framing down. And the reason why we're starting to win when it comes to Medicare for All is because we're not describing it as single payer. We're describing it as Medicare for All. We're just taking what exists a policy that people are already familiar with and we're improving it and we're also expanding it. So if you describe universal basic income as social security for all, as Kyle Kalinske says, that would make the world of difference because people already are familiar with social security. They know what it means. They know what the program entails. So if you describe it as that and you frame it along those lines, 
I think that this really could catch on and influence other 2020 presidential candidates to pick this up as well, because it's not new, it's not unfamiliar, it's not scary, because we all know what Social Security is. We all love Social Security. It's pulled how many elders out of poverty since its inception. I mean, it's it's crucial. So if you frame it as something like that, as, you know, in, in the way that Social Security saved elders from poverty, it can save workers who fall victim to automation from poverty, I think that you really could have a chance of having something like this gain steam. And I'm glad that there's a candidate like Andrew Yang because, I mean, he's a solid candidate and he really could influence American discourse when it comes to this issue and bring the issue of universal basic income to a national stage, that is, if he's able to participate in debates. Now, I'm not sure that that's going to be the case, because I'm sure, given that there's going to be like 80 candidates running at this point, um, and I'm exaggerating on purpose, but there's going to be a lot of candidates, right? So I'm sure that there's going to be some type of stipulation that if you are going to be able to participate in a debate, eligibility is going to start at 5% polling, for example. So I'm not sure that he's even going to have the opportunity to be on the debate stage, but nonetheless, his presence is is great. It's much appreciated by someone like me who's a progressive. Now, do I prefer him to Bernie Sanders? No, because I still think that Bernie Sanders, one, he has the advantage because he has more name recognition, but I do think that just personally, because I'm I'm a self-interested voter, Bernie Sanders' plan of free college, that's just more appealing to me than something like universal basic income in the short term. Um, because I think that there are so many millennials who are in debt because of student loans that that's hurting the aggregate economy, and we've got to do something about that. Now, am I also pushing Bernie to adopt something like student loan debt cancellation? Absolutely. I talked to Levy Sanders about this, Bernie's son, and you know, in his race in New Hampshire, he seemed open open to it, and I think that Bernie Sanders would be open to that, as well as something like UBI. You know, it just it just depends. But look. I just wanted to give you a little bit of a rundown of Andrew Yang. He's certainly, you know, a fascinating person, and I, I'm looking forward to his presence in the uh, in the field because he he's bringing a lot to the table, and I, I respect him for just being so bold and unapologetic on this one issue. That really is important. Now that the midterms are over, we're starting to see more and more speculation about who will and won't run in the Democratic Party's 2020 presidential primary. And at the rate we're going, there's going to be about 35 candidates. I mean, there's so many people. According to the Columbus Dispatch, Sherrod Brown is thinking about running. And on The View, Kirsten Gillibrand also said that she was thinking about running when asked about a potential run by Joy Behar. And we're also seeing speculation about whether or not Elizabeth Warren will run, Bernie Sanders, obviously, even Jeff Merkley from the state of Oregon, and whether or not he's going to run. But there's also another individual who's thinking about running. In fact, they're definitely going to run according to their former aides. Why don't you take a guess? Take a wild guess as to who that could possibly be. Well, of course, it's Hillary Rodham Clinton. Because why not? <laughs> Makes sense. And in an opinion piece for the Wall Street Journal, Mark Penn and Andrew Stein don't just explicitly say that she's definitely going to be running again, but they also say that she's going to be rebranding herself as a liberal firebrand and will, quote, easily capture the 2020 nomination. They're not just saying that she's thinking about running. They're saying 
yeah, she's definitely going to run. And the reason why this actually has some credibility is because uh, Mark Penn is a former aide of the Clintons. Now, they do contend that she's not necessarily planning to announce right away, saying, quote, she may even skip Iowa and enter the race later. But rest assured that one way or another, Hillary 4.0 is on the way. So they're very confident that she's going to run. And even though this conflicts with what other aides to the Clintons have said, that she won't be running, they're saying, no, she's going to run, and we actually have some insight into how she's going to run. She's going to try to rebrand herself as a firebrand liberal. Well, I mean, we have all of the tapes from just a couple of years ago where she said, oh, um, you know, some people accuse me of being a moderate. I plead guilty. So it doesn't matter that you rebrand yourself as a firebrand liberal the internet exists, and this is what politicians nowadays don't get. We have the internet. We can go back to just a couple of years ago and see you attacking Bernie Sanders for supporting Medicare for All. We have the tape of you saying Medicare for All will never, ever come to pass. Now, I don't necessarily know whether or not she will run at this point. I don't want to say it's a foregone conclusion. But if you go back to what Hillary Clinton said just a couple of weeks ago, she did make it clear that she does want to be president still. Do you want to run again? No. Wait. No. That was a pause. Well, I, well I'd like to be president. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, be, look, I, I, I think... Hopefully, when we have a Democrat in the Oval Office in January of 2021, there's going to be so much work to be done. I mean, we have confused everybody in the world, including ourselves. And we have confused our friends and our enemies. Right. They have no idea what the United States stands for, what we're likely to do, what we think is important. Uh, so the work would be work that I feel very well prepared for, having been in the Senate for eight years, having been a diplomat uh, in the State Department. And it's just going to be a lot of heavy lifting. So um, are you going to be yeah. doing any of that lifting? Do you feel like... Oh, I have no idea, Kara, but I'm, I'm going to... You know, I'm not going to even think about it till we get through this uh, November 6th election about what's going to happen. So, I mean, what she said there, in addition to the articles that we're seeing from aides saying, yeah, she's going to run. I mean, these are the people who are closest to her. Is it a foregone conclusion that Hillary Clinton will run again in 2020? I wouldn't necessarily say that, but do we have enough reason to deduce that a Hillary 2020 run is at least within the realm of possibility? Unfortunately, yes. Now, the last time we talked about this, I told you why she shouldn't obviously run. One, because she already lost to Donald Trump, and I don't think that she'd win if she were to run again. And two, because her favorability ratings are still abysmal. But let's think practically about the prospect of her presence in a Democratic Party primary and what that would mean for progressives. So on one hand, if she runs, I think that that would maybe inadvertently benefit progressives because she'd probably split the vote with other corporate Democrats like Joe Biden. But at the same time, in the event she were to run, even if that might benefit us going into the primary, that's still going to bring down the collective image of the Democratic Party. And no matter who wins, be it Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, that association of Hillary Clinton and Democratic Party is going to hurt the eventual 
Democratic Party nominee, even if it's someone like Bernie Sanders. But it would mostly be harmful to the country. Imagine if Hillary Clinton were to run and actually secure the nomination. I mean, we would fight like hell to stop that, right? But imagine if she were to run. Well, we already know what would happen. Going up against Donald Trump, she would lose. And let me just say this, an incumbent president is always going to have that incumbency advantage. Whenever voters see that the economy is doing well, they typically reward the incumbent president for the economy doing well. Now, you and I both know that the economy isn't doing so well for ordinary Americans. Wages are still low, even if the stock market is doing well. But I mean, if they have the choice between maintaining the status quo in terms of keeping things the same, well, voters are typically risk-averse, and they're most likely going to do what they've done historically and opt for no change as opposed to change that could be scary and be unfamiliar to them. So if Hillary Clinton were to go up against Donald Trump, would she run a better campaign this time? I mean, I'm sure she'd go to Wisconsin, but if you're curious about what a hypothetical Hillary Clinton-Donald Trump matchup would look like in 2020, just go back to what it looked like in 2016. She lost. So this would be a disaster for the country, and we all have a vested interest in defeating Donald Trump. If Donald Trump wins a second term and gets four more years as president, how many more Supreme Court seats is he going to be able to fill? How many more? At a minimum, it has to be one. Could be two. Could you imagine the amount of irreparable damage that that would do to the country? If Donald Trump got one or possibly two more Supreme Court seats, I couldn't, which is why if she's really going to run again, and I hope she doesn't, we have to do everything in our power to defeat her because she is a sure bet. If there's anyone that's been tested, it's been Hillary Clinton. She can't beat Trump. She's proven that. A little more than a month ago, Bernie Sanders introduced the Stop Bezos Act. And if I'm remembering correctly, it stood for the Stop Bad Employers from Zeroing Out Subsidies Act. And he got Amazon to cave. They announced that they'd be raising all of their workers' wages to $15 an hour. And that includes employees of Whole Foods and Amazon owns Whole Foods. Now, it was also the case that Amazon would be screwing workers in a different way since they announced that they'd be eliminating stock options and whatnot for workers. But nonetheless, that $15 an hour was still a victory for workers. It fattened their paychecks, even if it was just by a little bit. So this was still a victory for Bernie Sanders. He got this accomplished. So now that he's essentially slayed the beast, he got them to concede on something that's really important. In the short term, he's now setting his sights on a new target. And that target is Walmart, another abuser of employees and recipient of corporate welfare, you know, that is draining our tax dollars every single year because they want to pay their workers low wages and make more profits as a result. But what happens if you pay your workers wages so low that they have to be on welfare? Well, then you are essentially on corporate welfare yourself because you're making sure that all your workers stay poor enough to where the government and the taxpayer has to subsidize their wages. So Bernie Sanders is introducing a bill called the Stop Walmart Act. And yes, it is another acronym. It stands for Stop 
welfare for any large monopoly amassing revenue from taxpayers act <laughs> um I love it. He can he can turn anything into an acronym. So for some more details about this, Arthur Delaney and Dave Jameson of HuffPost report, Senator Bernie Sanders shamed Amazon so badly over its employee pay that the online retailer announced a new $15 minimum wage last month. Now, the Vermont Independent has set his sights on another low-wage boogeyman, an Amazon competitor. Walmart. In a bill introduced Thursday titled the Stop Walmart Act, Sanders is following essentially the same strategy that drove Amazon to say it would raise the starting pay in its fulfillment centers. You have the wealthiest family in the United States worth $180 billion, Sanders told HuffPost, referring to the Waltons, who own a majority stake in Walmart. They're paying workers starvation wages. The Stop Bad Employers by Zeroing Out Subsidies Act introduced by Sanders in September, would punish large companies for paying workers poorly enough that they qualify for welfare programs. The shorter version of its name, Stop Bezos Act, pointed the finger directly at Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos. The Walmart bill, more formally the Stop Welfare for Any Large Monopoly Amassing Revenue from Taxpayers Act, also ties one high-profile company to an unsavory practice. In this case, it's stock buybacks, which have surged this year in the wake of the big corporate tax cut that Republicans passed last December. And again, the goal is to increase the lowest paid workers' wages. Under the proposal, large companies would not be allowed to buy back their own stock unless all their workers earned at least $15 per hour and their CEOs earned no more than 150 times what their median employees earned. Though the new Sanders bill highlights Walmart in its title, the legislation would apply to any company that meets the criteria it lays out. The bill is unlikely to become law, mainly because Republicans still control the Senate and the White House. So yeah, that's just a fact of reality. Is it going to be codified into law? Of course not. Republicans in the Senate won't pass this, and Donald Trump certainly wouldn't sign it if it came to his desk. But... Could it actually do what the Stop Bezos Act did in just kind of putting pressure on Walmart to do this anyway? Maybe. And if it does, then I think that we all have to declare that Bernie Sanders, he's a force to be reckoned with, right? And I don't want to celebrate his victory before we officially secure victory. But if he's able to get Walmart to buckle, then that would be huge. Now, they're already responding. So he's already getting their attention. They put out this bullshit, you know, corporate PR statement saying we already start employees at, you know, an average of $11 per hour. Again, not good enough. $11 per hour is not good enough. Your workers should make $15 per hour. And in other cities and states, it should be more. So what Bernie Sanders is doing here is really smart because rather than just crafting a bill that's all-encompassing, and this is all-encompassing, but he's really making sure that he goes out of his way to target Walmart and name Walmart because that really targets the pressure, which is really important because these companies, if they see a bill that, you know, is all-encompassing, that is just, it's named this vague thing like the Support American Workers Act, they're not going to fear it. But if you actually name-drop them in the title of the legislation itself, that does something to these CEOs it it gets the attention on them that they don't want because these companies you know they are really worried about 
their image. That's why they're always doing these charities and they try to do what they can to pay lip service to the idea that they love their workers, even though they're exploiting them relentlessly. But to target them, this really puts the spotlight on a company like Walmart. A little more than a year ago, we talked about the investigation into Jane Sanders that was spearheaded by a right-wing smear merchant in the state of Vermont who alleged that she committed bank fraud while she was the president of a college in Burlington, Vermont. Now, what I said back then was that this investigation was nothing more than a political witch hunt, and yes, an actual political witch hunt, not a witch hunt in the way that Donald Trump describes the Mueller investigation as a witch hunt, but this was exactly the definition of a witch hunt. And today we got confirmation that that was, in fact, the case, because Jane Sanders was vindicated as NBC5 reports. Now, before we get to that article, I do want to give you some additional context, because we need to learn who the individual was that initiated this investigation. His name is Brady Tonzing, and when you learn about this person, it becomes crystal clear that, yeah, this was, in fact, a political witch hunt. So here's what I said about this in 2017. His name is Brady Tonzing. He is the vice chairman of the Vermont Republican Party, and also he was the chair of Trump's presidential campaign in Vermont. So that says a lot, but also Politico explains that he's constantly on alert for cases where he can slip the knife into Democratic politicians. And additionally, the rise of Bernie Sanders clearly stuck in his craw, especially given what he considered to be the lack of scrutiny Sanders enjoyed. It's probably because he's not corrupt, but they also state it was no surprise that Tansig scrutinized Jane Sanders' rise and fall at Burlington College. Now, they go on to state, on July 7, 2014, seven days of Vermont alternative weekly newspaper published a deeply reported piece by Alicia Fries about Burlington College's plummeting fortunes. Two weeks after Fries's piece appeared, Tonsing requested loan documents from the Vermont Educational and Health Buildings Finance Agency that had issued the 6.5 million bonds for the land. Now they're talking about the land that Jane Sanders purchased for Burlington College while she was the president. So Tonsig got all of these documents, he dug through them, and he found two people that were listed on the application for the loan. And on this application, it stated that these people pledged more money than they were in fact willing to donate. So essentially, the reason why these inaccuracies are problematic is because if you want to get a loan, you have to prove that you're going to be able to pay this loan back. And the way that Jane Sanders was trying to prove that the college would be able to pay this loan back was by telling the bank that they were expecting a certain number of donations. Now, Tonsing is alleging that she lied about how much donations the college would actually be receiving. And there was also another woman who was listed as a donor who would be giving the college $1 million, but the application didn't state that there was a stipulation to that and that the lady would only be giving this money upon the event of her death. So basically, there were a couple of inaccuracies here. And Tonsig, though, is taking those inaccuracies and he's alleging that Jane Sanders purposefully cited misleading information on this application so that way she could mislead them to get this loan. And that, of course, would in fact be an act of bank fraud. But remember that this isn't a loan that would personally enrich Jane or Bernie. It was for the college while she was the president, so she had nothing to gain personally from this other than improving her own legacy because, I mean, 
you can really debate whether or not she was an effective president while she was the president of Burlington College, but she wanted to secure her legacy, so that's what you can say was really at stake. I mean, this wasn't a loan for Jane Sanders. They weren't going to buy themselves a house or a car or a yacht with this money. It was a loan for the college, so it's dumb to commit bank fraud and, you know, be liable for something that wouldn't benefit you personally. But nonetheless, that didn't stop Tansing from waging this political witch hunt because obviously he's a Trump supporter and knowing that Trump is going to be seeking re-election in 2020 and Bernie may challenge him, he's doing everything he can to discredit Bernie ahead of the 2020 election. So Politico explains, Brady Tansing wrapped these figures and facts into the January 2016 letter to the U.S. attorney and FDIC requesting an investigation into what he termed apparent federal bank fraud. In March of 2016, Tonsing doubled down in another letter to federal officials. This time, he made an allegation that struck to the core of Bernie Sanders' clean government image. As a result of my initial complaint, Tonsing wrote, I was recently approached and informed that Senator Bernard Sanders' office improperly pressured People's United Bank to approve the loan application submitted by the senator's wife, Ms. Sanders. The evidence for that charge seems to be thin at best. According to sources familiar with the matter, the alleged pressure may have simply been a casual suggestion, perhaps chatter by a Sanders staffer over lunch instead of a written document or email, and though such a suggestion might still be improper, it would be difficult to prove a direct connection to the senator. So to me, I find this really interesting because Bernie Sanders has had a squeaky clean career for how many decades now? Since before I've been born. And all of a sudden, now that he's going to be running for president, while well, he's using his power and influence... Uh, which is completely out of character for Bernie, to influence a bank to push this loan through so Jane Sanders can look better. Now, regardless of how frivolous this investigation was, it was still very serious nonetheless, and it really became a national story once Jane and Bernie hired attorneys to defend them here. Now, what's interesting is that the party who was recently crying about due process, well, the implication was that since Jane and Bernie Sanders hired an attorney to defend themselves against very serious allegations, well, that must be a sign that they're guilty. No, in actuality, hiring attorneys didn't make them automatically guilty. It just meant that they wanted to defend themselves. This is something that reasonable people do when frivolous allegations of bank fraud and corruption are lobbed against you, when that can destroy your name and your credibility. And even if Jane Sanders was the main subject of this investigation, she was never the real target. The real target was Bernie Sanders, because the individual who initiated this investigation, Brady Tonzing, tried to find a way to implicate Bernie Sanders. So he said, well, you know, there was this improper conversation where Bernie Sanders tried to use his power as a senator to put pressure on the bank to approve this loan for the college that Jane Sanders oversees. But unfortunately for that individual who ran Donald Trump's campaign, this did not turn out the way he hoped it would. And Jane Sanders and Bernie Sanders, their name is now cleared well before the 2020 campaign season commences. And as Brad Evans of NBC News 5 reports, Senator Bernie Sanders' wife, Jane O'Mara Sanders, will not face any criminal charges related to a land deal at the former Burlington College. U.S. Attorney for Vermont, Christina Nolan, closed the investigation into any wrongdoing by Jane Sanders. A spokesman for Jane Sanders made the announcement Tuesday afternoon. Jane is grateful that the investigation has come to an end, he said, as she has said, 
said from the beginning she has done nothing wrong and Jane is pleased that the matter has now come to a conclusion. No criminal charges have ever been brought against Jane Sanders. Senator Bernie Sanders has said the allegations against his wife were politically motivated. And now it's essentially been proven that that is in fact the case. So going into 2020, in the event Bernie Sanders is able to win and become the Democratic Party's nominee, Brady Tonzing isn't able to use the argument that he was hoping to use because we're not sure how long the Mueller investigation will go on until, but there's also other lawsuits against Donald Trump for fraud. There's allegations that he committed tax fraud. So look, Trump's team, and in the event Brady Tonzing is Trump's campaign manager for the state of Vermont again, they can't say, well, Bernie Sanders also is under investigation because that's no longer the case. They no longer have this line of attack and Bernie Sanders' record of being squeaky clean is fully restored. There's no questions whatsoever. So to all the Republicans who were speaking out against Bernie Sanders and Jane Sanders and didn't want to actually dive into the details and be nuanced here, what do you have to say for yourselves? Because as I stated before, this was nothing more than a political witch hunt. And it turns out that's exactly what U.S. Attorney for Vermont, Christina Nolan, says as well. So what do you have to say for yourselves? It looks like you're going to actually have to challenge Bernie Sanders based on the substance of his policy positions. Well, sad day for you because the American people are on the side of Bernie Sanders and going into 2020, he's still the most popular politician in America. So um, good luck because you're going to need it. If you haven't noticed, I have been everywhere lately. I appeared on the David Dole show on News Talk 1010. I was on The Drunken Peasants. And I also made my debut on the Creationist Cat channel. And I wanted to share a clip of that in order to promote it because I definitely think that you should watch that. You recently made a video on a group you call MAGA cultists. Uh, I thought you were very uncharitable to them. For instance, you make fun of this woman right here. I think if they were Republican voters, they'd be stopped. <laughs> uh, the the Latinas at the border? Yeah. How could you mock a woman like this, Mike? I mean, she can't even afford a shirt with shoulders. Probably because the illegals are taking all her jobs. She said something that's absurd. She is stating that she believes people are making their way from Central America to the United States specifically to vote. If you're going to rig an election, uh, I think there are a lot easier ways to do it. It makes no sense, logically speaking. These are legal, Spike. They don't speak logic. They speak Mexican. And what about this fine upstanding gentleman you criticized? What would solve the whole thing in the border if they would just start shooting? Only shoot a couple and they would go home. Mike, if you shot out a couple of them, you probably wouldn't even hit them. They're excellent jumpers. I bet you're familiar with their beans, right? Well, I mean, the reason why a lot of these people are coming, specifically from Honduras, is because people were shooting at them. And part of the reason why they're coming here, people from Honduras specifically, is because of the United States backing a coup tacitly. So at a minimum, we can at least hear them out when they come here seeking asylum. Sure, but at a maximum, we could shoot them. So if you liked what you saw there, then please click the link down below to see the full video. It's an election special that we did, but it's still definitely funny and relevant. And additionally, I will link you to my appearances on the Drunken Peasants podcast, as well as my appearance on the David Dole show. Although we kind of just talked about the midterms then, so it's not necessarily as relevant. But nonetheless, if you want to check that out, I will provide you with the link to that down below. Enjoy.
that's all I got for you guys. Uh, I will see you next week. It's going to be a little bit of a shorter episode since that will be Thanksgiving week. So I will not be filming on um, Thursday or Friday, obviously. So hopefully... I'll have enough content for the rest of the week, but I just hope that you guys, even if you don't celebrate Thanksgiving, just take some time off from politics. You've all been working really hard. You've been organizing. So just spend time with your family and just try to relax because we all are soon going to be gearing up for the fight of our lives in 2020. So don't short yourself on some much needed rest and recovery. So that's all I've got for you guys today. As usual, I can't end the show without thanking all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors. You guys help us to survive and thrive, and I love you all so much. I'll see you next week. I'm Mike Figueredo. This is the Humanist Report. Take care.